you wished upon a star. Now we want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Disneyland. Just go to Action Park, there's no other park like it. Six Flags Great Adventure. It's not a world away. Paramount's Kings Island. We will officially open Universal Studios Florida. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. Now, here is your host. Hi, Defunct Land guests. My name is Kevin Perger, and welcome back to the Defunct Land podcast. Today, we will be finishing our discussion with Ron Schneider, and we will begin by discussing his work as the original walk-around Dreamfinder and Figment at Epcot. So let's get to it. So, uh, just to begin with, uh, what was your experience with Journey into Imagination, the ride, your experience creating the character, the walk-around character of Dreamfinder and Figment? Um, the, um, I first heard about the ride uh, when I was working at Disneyland at the Golden Horseshoe Review. Tony Baxter gave a presentation to the employees about uh, his current project, and he told us all about imagination and showed us pictures of Dreamfinder and Figment and mentioned they were going to be the only characters at Epcot Center. There wouldn't be any Mickey Mouse or Goofy. And uh, I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be that character. I just thought there was a very rich uh, cause, the, the, pro the process of imagination and communicating that to people. Um, I got to take a look, a preview look at the ride and um, use that as my Bible. And uh, then they brought me out to Florida, and uh, I got to do the character. And I was the first person to do the Dreamfinder. Uh, nobody was there to train me. There was no uh, Bible for me to work from. Um, I was pretty much on my own. And uh, I had a whole pavilion to play with and a, and a beautiful dragon and a terrific character. And I was kind of thrown to the wolves. Uh, I've covered on a number of different podcasts the process, and it's in my book, the process that I went through to... Uh, evolve the character uh, but um, basically I was out there with the guests and my mission was as I saw it to uh, not just to pose for pictures and sign autographs but to communicate the themes and ideas that were inherent in the ride the idea that imagination is something that belongs to all of us and um, if I could communicate that to the children that they were creative beings and get them to play with me creatively. If I could get the guests to suspend their disbelief and react to Figment and myself, not as a theme park character, but um, as a crazy guy with a, with a dragon, uh, and get them to spontaneously play with me, that became my goal. And so I uh, soon started working on ways of throwing the guests off kilter um, uh, giving them ways of interacting with me that would be uh, unexpected and spontaneous. Uh, so th that there was a whole mind game going on there between me and, and the guests. Uh, we had other dream finders who came in, um, and uh, I tried to uh, teach them what I'd learned and what I wanted to do, but everybody... Like I said, everybody likes to be Walt Disney, and these guys had their own ideas about what they wanted to, want to do with the characters. So uh, our, their dream finders tended to be uh, different, let's say, than, uh, than what I was doing out there. But uh, for five years, I had a wonderful time, and I miss um, 
I miss working with Figma. I miss working with the kids. Uh, it was a very, very exciting time, especially when we first got there and there was no other Mickey uh, Mouse or uh, characters. We were kind of the spokesman for Epcot Center for a while there. Um, right. and, that was a lot, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, the ride uh, still affects people. That's, I think the reason that the Dreamfinder is still remembered at all and people are so fond of Figment uh, has nothing to do with what we did uh, strolling the grounds. I think it all has to do with what Tony Baxter and his team at Imagineering did in the creation of the ride. They uh, introduced these wonderful characters and told the story so well. And you were there when Dreamfinder created Figment at the top of the ride uh, from his component parts. And you saw the affection Dreamfinder had for Figment. In the later versions of the ride, Figment is kind of treated like a nuisance, becomes more of a pest uh, but uh, he was so beloved in that first ride. At the end of the, the ride, when you came off there, you identified with Figment uh, and the possibilities that he saw in the world around him, and you could feel that. And I think that stuck with people. I think that's the reason why, uh, especially people my age, people who remember the original ride, uh, remember Figment and Dreamfinder so fondly and are kind of constantly clamoring to have the characters back. Uh, so... That pretty much is my experience with uh, the ride. Anything more specific you want to know, I'll be glad to tell you. Well, I do have a question um, from Facebook user Joe Madger. Um, what are your thoughts on Dreamfinder being removed from Journey into Imagination? Uh, for a long time, I was, I was certain that I would never know why that happened. It seemed to make no sense. But basically, the, uh, the contract that Kodak had with Disney to sponsor the pavilion had a clause in it that after 10 years, like any of the future world pavilions, the pavilion would be um, renovated, would be upgraded, would be uh, would evolve. Um, in the case of a Journey to Imagination, uh, the original ride lasted for uh, about uh, 16, 16, 17 years, and um, they it was a it was a costly ride to maintain, as I understand it, but. Um, also, uh, I have a friend of mine who was actually at the meeting when Michael Eisner said, I hate that dragon. Um, <laughs> there was also a, uh, I, I understand from some sources that there was a uh, uh, backlash at the idea of having an old bearded guy hanging around kids. Um, so there, th I think that may be part of the reason why they got rid of the characters completely. The ride that replaced it was was uh, was just a shame. They got more negative response to that ride than anything in the history of Walt Disney Company. Um, and uh, I met a friend of mine who was an Imagineer back then. Uh, I had lunch with him in 2010. And the first thing he said to me when we met each other, we hadn't seen each other in years, he says, Ron, I want you to know that I worked on the redo of Imagination, and I want you to know that I'm really sorry. <laughs> Apparently, they started with some great idea that got nickled and dined to death. And so what was there bore no, no resemblance to what was intended. Um, it doesn't excuse it, but there it is. Um, the, uh, what was my other point I was going to make? Um, oh, the, the biggest complaints when they got rid of Dreamfinder and Figment came from uh, the people in merchandising because they were making millions of dollars a year on Figment. 
And so one of the major reasons they brought Figma back into the ride was just so that they wouldn't lose that revenue. Um, some friends of mine had a site called the Friends of Figment, and they were convinced that they were the reason that their campaign to bring back Figment and Dreamfinder was the reason they brought back Figment. But it was, I think it was more of a uh, merchandising uh, deal. Uh, witness the fact that uh, Figment is uh, still, and Dreamfinder, are still merchandised uh, quite a bit within the company. Yeah, I mean, this uh, this ride... Um is suggests a lot and i will say just uh apart from this interview these suggestions you said everybody wants to bring back mr toad's uh wild ride uh just to anyone listening um i love that you suggest things in the comments of these videos but you will not suggest something that someone has not already suggested at this point um i have so many comments asking for journey to imagination so many comments asking for mr toad's wild ride and um just to do history videos on them and then of course try to recreate them in virtual reality um i the, the journey into imagination is not gone, um, and that's that's one thing that I'm hesitant to do episodes on for Defunct Land is because um, it's still there, kind of. I you know it's watered down. It's not the same. Um, I mainly deal with just extinct rides, but do you consider uh, Ron that it's gone? Do you think that the original intention in the original ride is gone, or do you think after the second incarnation and they made it? Uh, quote-unquote better again in the third by bringing back figment do you think that is still not enough it's gone it's completely gone <laughs> the story the story uh the message see epcot center was supposed to be an inspirational park it's supposed to touch people's lives and show you the your place in the world and give you an idea of where to go in the world with your life and i have met dozens of people who were inspired by the original epcot center the Imagination Pavilion uh, showed you where everything else in Epcot came from, where everything in the world came from, because it all comes from the imagination, from creativity. And um, that is nowhere, nowhere, I'll give you another one, nowhere to be found mm -hmm. in the current uh, Imagination Pavilion. Uh, in the original ride, they, sh they broke down the process of imagination. People didn't really get, get this because the ride was so dazzling and the special effects and the design was so dazzling that I don't think they really caught the message that we were talking about. Dreamfinders collecting all these sparks of inspiration at the beginning of the ride in the flying machine takes them to the Dreamport, restores them. Dreamport is analogous to, to your brain where you store ideas and inspirations. And then in the rest of the ride, he recombined those sparks of inspiration into new things to art, literature, performing arts, science and technology. And um, this is how the world works. This is how our mind works every single day. There's nothing new in the world. It's all sparks of inspiration recombined into new things. That's what Tony Baxter determined when they were designing the ride. That was the message of the ride. That is nowhere to be found, nowhere to be found in any manifestation of the ride ever since. And so that's gone. That, that is gone. And um, I, there are ways of bringing it back. I myself had designed for my own amusement uh, an, an update of that ride that would bring it into the 21st century and um, could, using modern technology, get the same message across, but do it on a more personal basis where you're flying the, the, the dream-catching machine but, um, and you're recombining the sparks. But, um, and I'm confident, by the way, that somewhere behind locked doors and Imagineering at this point, there's another ride. 
that they have that they would love to build. Um, up until a few weeks ago, there was a budget of $280 million that was earmarked for the new Journey into Imagination ride. And it just, like I said, a couple of weeks ago, they uh, cut back on their plans for Epcot Center uh, for the big redo that they've been advertising. There'll still be uh, an upgrade. There'll still be new, some, some new rides, but not like what they were planning. But that'll change. That'll change. I've heard rumors through the years, dozens of rumors of different things. I, I remember two years ago, everybody was certain that Imagination was going to close on January 1st. That rumor was everywhere. And now the current rumor is that someday the uh, characters from Inside Out will move into the pavilion and there'll be a 3D film about Figment and all this stuff. But it all changes. It all changes all the time. And until they break ground, I don't give any credence to any of it. And then until it opens, I don't judge it. The theme park industry in general, it has been changing. Um, Of course, it's always been changing. Um, But even recently, it's been changing a lot more. Um, I don't know if you've noticed... I'm sure you have at Universal and at Disney, we are getting away from uh, dark rides, you know, physical rides, um, less live action based to more screens and recorded. Um, I guess from a live action performance perspective, uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, having more of these, more big screens, more pre-recorded. And this is a question I ask most of my guests because that's something at Defunct Land we take very seriously is the invasion of screens in some of these parks. When you're, when they built Disneyland in 1955, um, the big thing was Westerns. It's easy to recreate a Western street. It's easy to create uh, Rivers of America, put a Mark Twain out there, boom. You've got a, an exciting and um, accurate depiction of that era. How do you tell a story about King Kong? Now, they tried in 1990, they opened Confrontation. And they had this, uh, you know, 50-foot recreation of Kong made out of airbags that's picked up a tram and everything like this. But the problem was it looked like a big toy. It didn't look like King Kong. We are, uh, we are, we are a, a society now that gets our stories in, from very high-tech sources. We get our stories in movies and television on a screen. Now, if you've been on the King Kong ride at, uh, you know, at uh, Islands of Adventure, they have King Kong on the screens, and everybody complains, oh, it's on a screen, it's on a screen. Well, the problem is, how are you going to do what Kong does in the real world? You can't. It's impossible. You can, you can put, uh, put guests within that screen and have them feel you know, the sensation that you get from the motion simulators. And what happens with that, though, is they go to the next room and, okay, everybody, you wanted an audio-animatronic Kong, there he is. The problem is he's nowhere near as exciting, as dangerous, as threatening as the film Kong. So I do not object to screens. And I think the only reason people do object to screens is because people on Facebook look for patterns to complain about. So they'll have something to post, something to rail against. Let's all bring back Mr. Toad. You know, it's just, it's, it's like, like you say, it's, it's people are trolls and they want to complain about something in theme parks. Well, it's another screen. Well, how else are you going to tell the story of Spider-Man and make it exciting, make it visceral, except by the combination of the motion base and the dimensional sets and the screens? There's no other way to do it. And until we find another way to do it, on top of which, how are you watching these shows? 
what is it that you're actually seeing? If even if you go on Pirates of the Caribbean and look at all those fabulous pirates, what are you actually seeing? It's a chemical reaction in the back of your brain. That's what it is. That's what you're seeing. Face it. It's a chemical reaction that's happening in the back of your brain. What does it matter how that chemical reaction is, is stimulated, how it's created? If it's a screen or if it's robots, it's, 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 all, it's all a chemical reaction. So we're complaining about something, but it doesn't really matter because how we get it is still a transmission of light waves and sound waves that we're processing in our own brains. And yet everybody complains about screens. <laughs> uh, the, um, when, when they open up uh, the Fast and the Furious ride at Universal Studios, everybody's going to complain about the screens. I'm already complaining. <laughs> of course you are. Everybody is. Everybody is. But the fact is, when you're sitting there in that, in that uh, ride vehicle, and you feel the excitement of rushing down that freeway, and it feels like you're moving, and the world is whipping past you so fast, and it's so thrilling, you know, you can sit there complaining all you want to, but the show works. The ride works, and the story works, and you're getting that thing. And, you know, and then people will still complain, and that's fine. But the the future of the industry is in its storytelling and exciting storytelling visceral storytelling our product in theme parks is not the ride and it's not the images on the screen it's your personal experience your physical emotional uh, uh inspirational spiritual experience that you have personally within you that's what we're creating that's what we're selling now when you're talking to me about the future of theme parks we're talking about live performance because that's my field. And this has not been, uh, has not progressed as far as ride technologies. And the new, you know, the new ride, te ride technology is coming along all the time. Um, but if you want to see the future of theme parks, you go to Renaissance fairs. Because in Renaissance fairs, the performers are free to get in your face and are free to be bawdy and suggestive and abusive and uh, funny. And the management uh, keeps, uh, keeps their hands off pretty much. They, uh, so the people on the streets there in, the theme, in Renaissance fairs are pushing, the ones pushing the envelope. Disney has this living character initiative that is um, trying to go beyond the fiberglass heads of the walking around character. So now we've got the talking Mickey's, uh, which are getting better and better. We've got uh, the, um, monsters incorporated laugh floor and, um, turtle talk. And, uh, these are all part of the living character initiative. The problem is they're taking a pure, purely technical, um, attack on this. Uh, they're not, uh, They've got to start doing this, and someday somebody will, with live actors. Um, not just live actors that are within a mechanical head selecting from a pre-approved list of uh, dialogue, which is what we've got now. Um, but uh, the future of this is when you put a live actor in every position in the theme park. There used to be at Disneyland in 1959, they opened up the Alice in Wonderland dark ride. And um, there was a ride dispatcher 
just when you got on the Caterpillar, you moved forward. And before you went down the rabbit hole, there was a person sitting there at the little panel with the buttons, and they would dispatch you. And they would put a girl there dressed as Alice. And that was so cool. The girl didn't do anything. She didn't say, I'm Alice. She didn't have any dialogue or anything like that. It was a ride operator. But you were being sent to Wonderland by Alice. She was pushing the button. Uh, years and years and years and years later, I'm riding Peter Pan's flight at the at uh, the Magic Kingdom here in Florida, and there was a girl sitting at the dispatch panel on Peter Pan's flight who looked just like Tiger Lily. She was stunningly beautiful with dusky skin, long black straight hair, and and I looked over to her and I said, "This is great! I got Tiger Lily sending me to Neverland." And it just it was a magic moment just for me. Like I say, these things happen just inside of us personally. Um, and when you can put an actor in every position, that's going to be a major uh, development. Right now, we've got a little bit of that. People are, are playing a little bit in character. You've got characters out there like Maynard at Disneyland. If you don't know who Maynard at Disneyland is, look him up, um, who... who take the reins and do wonderful stuff out there with the guests, but it's they're few and far between. And, um, but that's, uh, that's the real future of live performance in theme parks. Uh, the stage shows tend to regurgitate what we saw in the, in the cartoons and come off, uh, you know, they, they pale by comparison, but it's nice to hear the songs, you know? Um, but that's my thought about, uh, where theme parks are going and the problem, the quote problem with screens. Well, the uh, I agree with you on the live action actors. Uh, Star Wars Land coming to Disneyland and Disney World is ever so divisive uh, uh, that some people love it, some people hate the idea of it. But everybody seems. Every, How can they love it? How can they hate it? It hasn't. I haven't seen it. Yeah, exactly, yet. exactly. Um, now, how, it, much, how much time do we want to waste complaining about something that we haven't seen? You know, because <laughs> here's because the other point that I need to make is this. We're, we're the guests, we're the audience, we're not the Imagineers. And all we know is what we've seen. That's why people spend so much time complaining about new stuff that they haven't seen and asking people to ask and begging Disney to bring back Mr. Toad, bring back the original Imagination ride. You wouldn't want the original Imagination ride that was built in 1982. And the technology is so completely dated that now everything that was up in the image works back in 82 is on your cell phone. Why do you want to bring that back? It's, it's, you got to understand that Imagineering has people on the payroll who do nothing all year but travel the world looking at new technologies and new show equipment. And these people do nothing but try to create new things. We don't know anything about what these people are doing. We don't know what's coming. And if we could dictate what was coming, we would never have the Tower of Terror. We would never have Pirates of the Caribbean or the Haunted Mansion because we are not Imagineers. All we know is what we've seen. We need to shut up and be an audience. End of rant. <laughs> I agree with that halfways. Um, I think the Star Wars land, uh, the... Um, I don't, and I, the, my main concern is not what I, what, what it's going to be. It's where it's going to be. Cause we know that, um, at Disneyland, but, um, everyone seems to agree that the live act, they're, they're going to put live actors. They're going to be free roaming. They're going to build a story around those live actors and they're going to blend in with guests to a certain point. 
and then you're going to stumble upon them. I, everyone thinks that's really cool, the idea of that, um, having the live actors build the entire land. Um, on the screens, uh, yes, people uh, really hate screens, and I'm guilty of hating screens, um, just because I prefer a dark ride. Now, you mentioned Spider-Man, and I think that Spider-Man is a fantastic example of screens done perfectly, because it, it's not just a screen, such as some of the other rides, such as Kong, and it's not just a screen. It's There's live-action props, there's, um, there's buildings that are really there, and then the screens supplement what's not there. So I, so I think the guests like the blending of every art form because that's that's what it should be, uh, in my opinion. You know, theme park attractions should blend every art form to make them, you know, the most enriching experience. Whether that be live action screens, live props, different things. Um, but I am I am glad that you ranted because that's a perspective that we never have on Defunct Land because that's almost the opposite of what defunct land is um in that because we are recreating some of these rides in virtual reality which i guess you could argue is a technology that would not have existed so we are actually doing the exact same thing and it is a screen so i guess i guess you're right <laughs> uh, so you got me you got me there um but yeah so it's it's nice to have that different perspective um the antithesis to the idea of uh non-screens and it's also nice to hear it from someone that is a veteran in the theme park industry and I'm actually going to pose you a question that I think is, I'm, I'm interested to see how you're going to answer this. So before you were talking about, on your rant about people that don't like screens, such as um, me, you, uh, you, you said that you haven't seen it yet, and, also, and that's kind of the idea of being the guest, is that you don't know what's coming, you don't know what you want until you're given it, and then you understand. Um, when you look at what's happening to Epcot, um, it's a bit different than as simply saying, oh, we don't like this type of technology. It is, um, they're, they're asking the audience through box office numbers and through what people are talking about online, what they think that we want, such as Guardians of the Galaxy, Ratatouille, different things, just throwing this into Epcot pavilions. Um, do you think that that is also the wrong way to go from a innovation standpoint? Is that we sh you would rather have Epcot be its original intention and give guests that experience and then they understand why they want it? Or do you would you rather give guests what they claim that they want? Like, we want more Guardians of the Galaxy rides. We want more Marvel rides. Um, which one of those do you think you lean towards? Uh, I lean towards the original Imagineers idea of Epcot Center. Uh, you know, you, you, you got to give a lot of credit to the people who were running Disney back in 1980. Uh, the... Uh, card walker don tatum ron miller who uh the imagineers came to him and said we want to build a theme park with no mickey mouse in it it's going to be about the real world and these guys said okay do it i mean that took a lot of guts to put you know two billion dollars into something with no mickey mouse in it um then eisner came along and said let's put mickey mouse in there <laughs> uh the epcot had a uh, center had a purity back then it was its own thing, and it was very pure. Uh, since then, uh, we've brought in a lot of great entertainment. We have provided, we've added characters uh, some places in ways that have really plussed the show and made it more accessible and entertaining for the guests. I, for one, love Ellen's Energy Adventure because he didn't sleep through it like he did through Journey of the uh, Universe of Energy, the original Universe of Energy. Um, I uh, love the addition of the Nemo characters and see no problem with adding those in living scenes. Um, I 
uh, I did not particularly enjoy a test track over World of Motion. However, I love the new redo of uh, World of Motion uh, test track and actually feel that it's more effective as an Epcot Center ride than World of Motion was, which was, um, you know, a little bit too lyrical and too f- and too much fun. You know, I loved what Ward Kimball did with it. On the other hand, um, this new version of Test Track looks and feels like an Epcot Center ride, and it has that educational limit uh, element, and it um, it communicates about transportation and uh, that whole world to people better than World of Motion did, I think. Um, I love Mission Space because it's exciting and uh, it works for me on a personal basis because it gives you the the isolating experience of being a space traveler. The story doesn't quite work because you're, you're testing, no, you're not, no, you're in trouble, no, you're not. Um, but um, I love the ride. I absolutely love it. Uh, so... The Imagineers can blend these elements in ways that will resonate in an Epcot Center uh, educational, inspirational way uh, when they're allowed to. I think Ratatouille Ratatouille is going to be a perfect fit uh, in France. Uh, On the other hand, I will hate, hate, hate to lose Impressions to France. That film is flawless and uh, one of the best things on property. Yeah, I think it's uh, probably important to note that the Imagineers are probably not deciding which intellectual property they have to put in the parks. They're probably given that assignment by uppers, I'm guessing. But like I said, but like I said before, it is those parameters that make creating these things exciting and challenging. Um, you, you you get stuck with, you get handed a thing, and then then your mission is to make it work creatively. You get, somebody says they're going to shove Frozen into uh, the Norway Pavilion, and um, and everybody goes, "Oh God, that's going to be a disaster." Well, it wasn't a disaster. Right. It's a glorious ride, and um, and you know, I, I my my current creative uh, job is I create. Um, cabarets for a theater in downtown Orlando. They come to me and they say to me, we need to do a cabaret this year. This year we're going to do, and they'll give me a year. Uh, and I have to make a show out of the music and trivia and news of that year. They came to me after I did the first couple and said, would you like to pick the year? And I said, no, I don't want to pick the year. There's no challenge in that. I get, well, I want to be stuck with a year that I have to find the show in. That's the challenge. That's the fun of it. And so the Imagineers, yeah, they don't get to pick the IPs. Um, they may, they they may try, and they well, you know, when when uh, the story, of course, goes that when uh, Tony Baxter and his friend went to see Indiana Jones, the first Indiana Jones movie, they immediately, five minutes into the film, turned to each other and said, "Wouldn't it be great if we could do this in the parks?" Right. And um, that was the beginning of Indiana Jones coming to the parks. Disneyland opening day, what do you remember from it? Um, the general admission Disneyland opening day, what attractions do you remember riding or going to? I was two and a half years old. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So I don't, I, my mother uh, remembers looking around and saying, gosh, this place is nice. It'll be a shame. It'll be all run down and, and broken in a year. <laughs> um, I uh, do remember having lunch uh, in a saloon in, in Frontierland. Um, 
We were seated in the back. We were having lunch. It was very dark. I was completely focused on my food. There was something going on at the other end of the room that was brightly lit, but I paid no attention. 25 years later to the day, I was the brightly lit something going on at the other end of the room. I was in that show, The Golden Horseshoe Review. But I was there opening day, but I don't remember it. Well, I, I don't blame you. I, I remember going to Disney when I was two or three, and I just remember everything that I saw in commercials over and over again. The Dumbo, yes. the elephants, and just everything you is advertised that you just like see, and you're like, oh, and then your brain makes that connection. Um, yeah. But it's still magical for all ages. Um, so uh, the other question I have is, one of my uh, one of the attractions that I like to go to at a Disney World um, is the Monsters Laugh Floor, and you you worked on this. Yep. Um, what is it like to work on Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor? Well, it's a wonderful toy that they've created for us. Um, we uh, you're, you're paired with somebody at the beginning of the day that you're going to be doing the show with. Um, you do the uh, I'm not going to give away any uh, major things here, but uh, you work together doing the two-head character. The one of you does Buddy Boyle, and one of you does uh, uh, Marty Wazowski. And, and um, it's all done in real time. Uh, we, uh, we can see you out there watching us, and we can hear you because of the guy with the microphone. And um, it is done in real time. Uh, it is loosely uh, scripted, but um, we have a lot of leeway in what we can do. And um, it is just a lot of fun, uh, especially when the guests decide to uh, – uh, when the guests cooperate, it's fun. But also when people start to cut up and um, try to get away with stuff, uh, we pretty much know what's going on and, uh, can, and have ways of handling that. Uh, we do – we work in a theme park uh, as, a, as a performer. There's uh, – the improv comes early in the run. When, you, when you're finding out what the audience is going to do. But the fact of the matter is that audiences are the same. People are the same all over. And if you provide, if you give the guest a particular stimulus, like if you've got, if you're a dragon, if you're a wizard carrying a dragon, there are only four or five ways that anyone's going to respond to a wizard carrying a dragon. And as a performer, once I know what those four or five ways are, I can have prepared answers multiple prepared answers for each one of those responses. So when I'm out there all day talking to you, I know pretty much what you're going to do. You're not going to surprise me. So when you provide, pre present me with one of those responses, I will have a ready response that will make your response funny and entertaining and makes me look very clever. And it gives the illusion that what we're having is a magical moment that has never happened before. But it has. It's happened a lot. Um, for example, a figment would, uh, snap, would snatch the hat off of a child's head and it would magically appear on figment's head. Uh, so people come up to me decades later and say, you took my hat off my head. Remember the time you took the hat off my head and put it on figment's head? Um, and I go, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happened thousands of times. And this is, this is true uh, in, uh, in doing the Monsters show or pretty much any live show where you're interacting with the audience. Um, so our job doing is, is, is not the theme parks. We don't strive for constant innovation. We strive for consistent perfection. We want to create a perfect, a perfect moment for you because you paid good money and you deserve it. 
Um, and we need to do that consistently and keep it fresh. You know, that's the real, that's the real challenge. That's the real task, uh, in our jobs is to do the same show over and 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 make it fresh for you. And that's what we do. That's a fantastic way of putting that. You should write a book. <laughs> and the name of the book I should write is called From Dreamer to Dreamfinder, and it's available on Amazon. There's hardcover, softcover, there's a digital version, and an audiobook with nine hours of me talking. I will pick up your book, and I will read it. I'm excited to read it, especially after talking to you. Um, the uh, and, I, and I urge everyone to pick up his book as well. This is not a plug by any means. This is just a coincidence. Um, no, but mine is a plug. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug. Um, so my next, uh, my last two questions. The first one is Chuck E. Cheese. This is a part of everyone's childhood. It's a themed restaurant chain um, that people are just now starting to talk about again. It's one of those things that people don't bury, but people forget what went into it. In my opinion. Um, People are starting to talk about it more online. It's it's weep, it's seeping itself into the theme park community, the people that like these live performance, live show themed restaurants. Um, because people are now realizing, oh my gosh, there's a characters, there's stories, there's there's this whole theme going on that's not happening at the arcade. It's not the pizza. It's the on stage. So what did you? What was your experience with Chuck E. Cheese? What did you do with them? Uh, what are your thoughts? Just what do you have to say about Chuck E. Cheese? Uh, Chucky, the Chucky company came to, uh, a Disney subsidiary based at the studio, uh, out here. And, um, as they formed a contract to write these shows and they were looking for a writer. And so for about two years, I wrote all of the Chucky shows. This is writing the dialogue for the, uh, robot figures and the, uh, material for the videos. And I also did the voice of, um, a narrator for the show, which is called Mr. Mouth. It was a puppet of a mouth because um, you're eating pizza. Um, and so I did that for two years. It's a bit of a grind. You do five three-minute shows in uh, in a particular season. It's changed out uh, three times a year, I think. And so you're writing. You're constantly writing and producing, writing and producing, writing and producing. Um, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I got to write scripts. I got to write some lyrics. We had a terrific guy writing music. Casey Filiacci up in New York wrote the melodies, and then I would write the lyrics to them. Uh, my friend Jeff Palmer was our producer uh, and director, and uh, uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun as far as it went. I also got to work on uh, redesign for the uh, part for the restaurants, which went into some of the restaurants. Uh, and since you brought it up, I just heard last night a rumor. I heard this on television actually. That they're going to phase out the robots, that they're phasing out the stage shows because um, people are, they said, aren't paying attention to them. One of the things I noticed when I was doing the shows was that um, they were turning the volume down on the shows. Um, and I put this down to the fact that the operators got sick of listening to them <laughs> and the guests couldn't hear themselves talk to each other over the shows. And, and so they paid us, put all this money into producing these shows, but the then they started turning the volume down on people so they wouldn't pay attention to them. Um, it uh, and it's finally paid off to the point where I think they're going to get rid of the shows. Which, uh, you know, depending on what a, how big a fan you are of that type of thing, uh, could be a tragedy. Um, there was no real sophistication there. The shows were uh, were, were very uh, childish. 
Um, I got some to do some good writing, I thought, and created some some nice stuff. But uh, I don't think anybody paid attention or remember much remembers much of it. Now, saying having said that, I just discovered on YouTube all the shows I wrote are on YouTube, um, including there's one of Jack and the Beanstalk, which I am embarrassed to say I played the giant. So if you find if you find that particular show, and I'm not going to help you, but if you find that particular show of Jack and the Beanstalk, you'll actually see me making a complete ass of myself as uh, the giant in that story. Well, I will have to put a link in the description if I can find that, um, so everybody can see that. Um, that's fantastic. The uh, Chuck E. Cheese is interesting um, to me because it is one of those things where intense nostalgia and oh it's a themed restaurant but you adults go to disney because there's things for adults to do at disney i don't know how many adults go back to chuck e cheese to relive their glory days or see the stories um they got a fan fan club they had a convention this summer i understand um of uh, chuck e cheese and uh showbiz pizza enthusiasts that that's interesting i mean there there's a long history so i'd appreciate the history but i'm not sure how many of those history pop cultural lovers still go and brave through the kids and the pizza to get to their um right to get to the front to just to see the stage show but it's interesting that you worked for them and the final thing i have is what we are all really excited about the theme park community um uh is all looking forward to or at least paying attention to um walt's frozen head <laughs> um, this is a movie. You can explain this. It's a movie that was crowdfunded and w- uh, surpassed its crowdfunding. And um, just tell me about uh, Walt's Frozen Head. Uh, I went to a premiere. Uh, my publisher, um, uh, Leonard Kinsey, wrote a book called uh, The Dark Side of Disney. And I went to, uh, they made a documentary uh, about, uh, well, not about the book, but uh, loosely based on the book went to the premiere and at the premiere they showed the trailer for this movie called the further adventures of Walt's frozen head and uh, uh, the trailer showed uh, all these different characters but it did not show Walt's frozen head uh, they showed everything but and um, and I saw the trailer and the trailer looked okay and I uh, kind of went off shucks I'm sorry I missed out on working on that uh, a couple months later uh, lying in bed one night and I checked my email and the director uh, had um, had uh, reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in auditioning for the part of Walt. So I put together, they sent me a copy of the script, which I enjoyed, and I uh, put together a couple of video uh, monologues and I got the job. And so uh, a little over a year ago, we spent uh, three days in a soundstage. Uh, they sh- I shaved off my beard, and I was surprised when I shaved off my beard how much I looked like Walt Disney. Uh, then had a makeup lady came in. She did a wonderful job on me and, um, we filmed, uh, all of Walt's parts and, uh, they have been spending the, in the uh, interval since inserting my head into the movie. <laughs> um, they, I have, they didn't really originally plan for him to be in the movie. They just were going to reference him. No, no, no. They, they always, they would carry up. They had him in a box with a green a green placard in it, they knew that they were going to put him in that box, but they didn't have the actor yet, and they couldn't shoot it live because it would it wouldn't have worked out uh, with a real person there. Mm. They had to it had to be a visual effect, so they put that off until the last thing, and then they added me. And uh, for the last couple months, uh, I've been hearing from our uh, 
director, Benjamin Lancaster, that the show, the film's about to be finished, about to be finished, about to be finished, but you know, but they're adding music, they're adding Foley sounds. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice story. It's kind of like a, a um, Frank Capra movie in that it's not, it's not a whole thing making fun of Walt or making fun of Disney. Uh, it's a kind of a heartwarming story about people who hang on to things too long. And it's the story of Walt and the fellow who uh, finds him and uh, brings him up into the park, into the real world to see his park. Um, there's not a lot of stuff in the park. Uh, there is some, most of which was filmed without Disney knowing we were doing it at the time. Um, and the, the entire film is actually shot, like I say, before I came along. So uh, I had no input into what the rest of the film looks like, but uh, Benjamin did let me uh, do some rewriting on my part and uh, write around some of my dialogue. So I got to put some, some stuff in there. Uh, and uh, I can't wait to see it myself. I've seen bits and pieces and the rough cut, but um, I'm just waiting for the thing to go. They want to get it into the film festival circuit. Uh, that's their, their aim. Uh, but uh, hopefully soon the people who send in money We'll get their copies and uh, be able to see the movie. It's called The Further Adventures of Walt's Frozen Head, uh, written and directed by Benjamin Lancaster. And uh, I'm uh, uh, proud, of the, proud of the work I did in it anyway. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. I hope they do a wide release. I did not get on the Kickstarter soon enough. Um, and I hope they do well on the festival circuit um, and they don't get too, many, uh, too much legal trouble for filming in the parks and filming about Walt Disney without consent. Benjamin's handled that wonderfully. I don't think he's going to have anyone. The script is not at all derogatory toward the park and or to Disney. Right. Um, so I don't think they have a hassle with that. And um, if uh, other films like this are any indication, I would say eventually the film is going to wind up on YouTube and people will be able to see it everywhere. Well, I think that's everything. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today, Ron. I know. I had a ball. I had a ball. And I'm going to look forward to going through the rest of your stuff. Well, I hope you like it. And thank you so much for coming on. So that's it for this episode of the Defunctland Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and thank you for visiting Defunctland.